Amen. I am uh, grateful to God that you have given Pastor Bobby a sabbatical. Let me see if I can open up this technology up here. It is important that men of God take a break. You know, pastors are not apostles. I hear pastors sometimes say, well, my job is to pray and preach. No, that's the apostle's job. Pastors visit hospitals. They build structures and systems. They create care ministries and discipleship ministries. And a pastor's job is to equip the saints to make them whole. You know, when you spend your whole life making other people whole, it takes a toll. And so you have to pace yourself. We don't want a five-year pastor. We want a lifetime pastor, a legacy pastor. And by giving him this time away to refresh himself, uh, you extend his ministry and the influence of this church in this city because whether we like it or not, our world is driven by personalities. And he is the face of this church uh, in the community. We understand he's not Jesus. You know, Jesus wouldn't wear skinny jeans. <laughs> Didn't cut the sides of his hair short, grew it long and shaggy. Jesus was a hippie, wore sandals and long hair. But he's the man of God God called to this house, and I honor him for inviting me here and allowing me to be here today. Many of you know my son Dylan, uh, my youngest son, and uh, it's good to be here. Gail and I had triplets in 1986, and about eight years later, we discovered that we were pregnant with him, almost named him Oops. <laughs> but it's good to have he and Abby and just love what y'all have done for our family. I want you to do something that I don't normally ask people to do. I want everybody here to take your phone out and go to your text area. I wrote a book called Hindsight 2020. And it's about the 10 things I got wrong as a pastor, the seven things I did right. And I'm going to let you order it today by texting, and you're going to get it for the cost of shipping and handling. It's, I think it's about $6, $5.99, $6.25, something like that. And you're going to get it from our offices down in Sanford, Florida, outside of Orlando. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. When you get your email back, and you don't have to act on it right now. You'll just be connected so you can act on it if you want to. Uh, they're going to upscale you or upsell you to there's a workbook to work through it. And then there's the, they flew me down there and I did uh, 10 or 12 master class videos for you to work through the issues in your own life. One of the things most people don't understand is their shadow motives. And I discovered as I went through this process, and it was a long process, not only of writing the book, but of discovering the issues in my life. Paul said, those things I don't want to do, I do. Those things I, don't, I do, I don't want to do. He, he said, you know, Paul was a transparent introspector. He said, my private life is to be used for public ministry. No minister has a private life. Our lives are an open book. Our character matters. And so he said, he got honest. He said, I'm a human being. There are no perfect pastors. I was the closest one in the history, but, but as best as I was, I still wasn't perfect. I mean, I, I gave it my best shot and missed. But what I did is decided to help other people discover their issues by being honest about mine. And the videos are like me being able to sit down with you and give you personal coaching or our consultation, and let's talk about how can you be better. Let me give you one of my things. Many of you know I went to prison in 1975 and got out in 83. 
And when I got out, people said, well, you're never going to be in the ministry. And I became a janitor at a church. And God raised me up. All the things people said I couldn't do, I did. But part of my shadow motives is I was determined every day to prove I was bigger than my shame and my guilt. And when you're proving something, you may accomplish something, but you'll hurt people along the way. Shadow motives are hurtful to your destiny and the people God calls to come alongside of you. And most people never discover them. So, got your phone out, go to text. The number you're going to text to is 33777. It's all God numbers. 33777. And you just put my name in there, Maury, M-A-U-R-Y, and just send it. And the rest of it will come back to you. And don't be acting on it right now. Don't get your credit cards out or anything like that. You can do that later. But uh, I hope that you will uh, enjoy the book, whether you upsell, whether you buy anything else or not. Let it just be a blessing to you. Uh, you're not going to get a book of this quality this cheap. And uh, it's the best I could do. So hope you'll do that. I'm going to share some truth for tough times with you today. Anybody feel like we live in the twilight zone? Has anybody looked at the country? Remember last March, we want everybody to stay home for two weeks. Masks don't work. A year later, there are still people being told they can't. I was in Salem, Oregon the other day. The restaurants are still shut. Protesters are everywhere. People burning down stuff's everywhere. And, you know, I understand some of that, but, you know, when they go after the little mermaid at Disney, that's over the line. Leave the little mermaid statue alone. The anger, the animosity, the venom between people, male, female, white, black, blue lives, black lives, it's like everybody hates everybody. Republicans hate Democrats. Poor people hate rich people, even though you want to be rich. It's amazing to me how many people are mad about the rich people, but they're playing the lottery to get rich. Just saying. There's something in the spirit right now that God's going to have to deal with. This is not going to be dealt with by Washington. It's not going to be dealt with by the current Supreme Court or packing the Supreme Court or unpacking the Supreme Court. It's not going to be dealt with by our military It's not going to be dealt with by our law enforcement officials. There is a spiritual issue going on. And our part of solving the problem is to fall in love with Jesus, fall in love with people, and make sure other people fall in love with Jesus. And when everybody loves Jesus, all this hate's going to stop. But until everybody loves Jesus, you're not going to fix those. You're not going to educate it out. You're not going to legalize it out. There has to be a heart change in people where we start loving each other Because we're made in his image. The Bible says in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. How many of you know some people ought to be ashamed of what they do with the Bible? They they don't tell the truth about it. You know, God said some things that we may not be politically correct today. I mean, if God wrote the Bible today, Amazon would not let you buy it because he only identifies male and female. He left everybody else out. Oh, I'm sorry, he's God. 
That doesn't mean he doesn't love everybody. God can love you and correct you. God can love you and be disappointed. Mm -hmm. How many of your parents love your children? How many of you have ever been disappointed? Yeah, yeah. That beard. If you were on Duck Dynasty, you'd fit right in. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, the Bible says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Everybody, everybody wants to profit, but everybody doesn't want to go through the experience that makes it profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. The Bible is not a motivational book, although it has motivation in it. The Bible is a book of absolute truth. I, I get so tickled sometimes. I hear people and they're trying to be politically correct or culturally conformed, and they say something like, well, their truth or my truth, and I always look at them and think, have you lost your ever-loving mind? You don't have any truth. You have an opinion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, my word is truth, and he's the spirit of truth. I don't have any truth. I have the truth when I have Jesus because he is the truth, but beyond that, I have an opinion. And when we make people's opinions equal to the revelation of the Word of God and the sacrifice and resurrection of the Son of God, we have minimized who God is and maximized insanity. I can be respectful of your opinion, but don't compare that with that truth. Well, I love you. God loves you and I do too. What does your love have to do with His love? Your love is conditional. You say, no, my love's unconditional. <laughs> you might want to check your heart. You got a limit somewhere out there to where you're about to get ticked off. There are two battles you got to win in life. You got to win the external battles going on out here, the culture battles, the assault battles, the people being mean to you battles, the people that hurt you battles, the, all the battles. And then you got to win the internal battles in your head and your heart. And most people don't realize that the struggle is real. The external assault on the church and on Christians today is on display. Truth is under attack, and the people that stand for truth are being lied about and slandered. It's for the purpose of destroying you. You say, well, you know, uh, no, the enemy wants to destroy you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, but I came to give you life and that more abundantly. You know that word there for abundance is hooper. It means it's the same word as when you go to McDonald's and you say supersize it. When Jesus said abundantly, he said hoopersize it. Beyond what you can ask or think. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 40. I'm going to start with David this morning. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. Now, David chose five stones for one giant. And people say, well, he knew what was coming. I don't know that he knew what was coming. But how many of you ever took a shot and missed it? You know, sometimes you want some backup. But the reason for that, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 21, I think, are they putting these on the screen? Yeah. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses number 15, 22. And let me, go, let me just confess something right now. 
I never went to Bible school. I took Bible classes and correspondence courses and got a degree from Global University and all that stuff. But I never sat in a class where I heard a professor say how to say all these Old Testament names. I don't think God cares. So I'm just going to take my best shot. So if you say that's not how that name said, you're right, I'm wrong, won't be the last time. The principles are going to be right. The truth's going to be right. The pronunciation, I'm just going to put my Texas accent on it. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him and went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Here's this first one. Then Ishbi Benob who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeriah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. It happened after that that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and then Sibachai, the Hushatite, killed Saph. Couldn't it just be Fred and Ethel? Anyway who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was a war at Gob with the Philistines where Elahan, the son of whoever, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was a war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, I told you David had five stones. What we've discovered is Goliath had four children. And you read that and say, wow, that, that was probably traumatic. Do you realize that David killed Goliath 45 years before this story happened? David is an old man, he's tired. He's been in battle after battle after battle after battle. And all of a sudden, the giants come back up. And can you imagine the emotions? You're in the middle of a battle. The Bible says you're weary or you're faint, depending on which one of the versions of the Bible you're reading out of. And you hear the ground beginning to rattle. You hear this clanking of this enormous armor of another giant. You maybe hear the men of Israel backing up and screaming, run, there's a giant in the land. And now David doesn't have just one giant in front of him. He's got four. So let me give you some spiritual truth to extrapolate out of this. Number one, the giants keep coming. You say, man, I got it licked today. We won that election today. We won that lawsuit today. I got that job today. I'm walking in health today. I'm walking in prosperity today. You think the devil's not going to attack all that stuff in your life? <clears throat> you think once you win it, it's over with? The enemy's still the enemy. Man, David had done some things. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. He established the glory of God. David has sinned horribly and made horrible mistakes. You know, God doesn't hide our mistakes. God doesn't hide our, you know, if you read the Bible, he, he told some pretty shameful stories. Yeah. He revealed it. 
but he was still a man after God's own heart. David had humanity, but he had a heart. The giants kept coming. Second thing you need to remember, you don't outgrow the giants. You don't get bigger than a giant. You beat a giant. You conquer the giant. I meet Christians all the time that don't believe the Bible. They think they do. They say they do, but they don't. You ever heard somebody say, well, I'm a creative. I can't do that. You know, we give creatives a pass on administration because they're creatives. But the Bible says you can do all things. The new neuroscience says there is no such thing as a left brain, right brain person. There are people that haven't developed half their brain. Because the Bible says you can do all things. So don't, you know, when you give somebody an excuse, well, they're a creative or, you know, they're just the, 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 the they, they work in the bookkeeping department. They're, they're an administrative. Administratives can develop creativity and creativity can develop administrative skills. And the fact is you'll be a better person if you get a bigger brain. Just use a little bit more of it. You, got, you know, you can't be more than a conqueror if you're always a victim of something. Well, you know, when I was 12 years old, this happened to me. When I was a little girl, this happened to me. When I was a little boy, this happened to me. And I hate it. It was horrible. But you got to get over it. You can't be more than a conqueror if you live with a victim mentality all of your life. People that whine never have victory. I don't care how spiritually mature you become. I don't care how many great things you've done in the kingdom of God. Giants are still coming to destroy you. Let me give you another truth. When a giant shows up, he's usually accompanied by a lie. The devil always operates in lying and deception. And, uh, you know, David sees Ishbi Banab, the first giant, and his brain had to go, because he looks like Goliath. He's the same size as Goliath. He sounds like Goliath. He smells like Goliath. He wears the armor of a Goliath. You know what the enemy wants you to do? He wants you to believe you didn't really defeat him. He wants you to believe the giant you thought you beat is still alive. And that you really haven't had total victory or total deliverance or total freedom. You really didn't change when you came to Jesus. When I got saved in 1975 in the Dallas County Jail, people said it was just jailhouse religion. In 1976, jailhouse religion. 1977, 1978, 1979, 1980, 1981, 1982, and I got out in 1983, jailhouse religion. Do you understand in the year 2010, a newspaper called uh, my, my personal CPA trying to find out, in the ask you know what? It never stops. The lie never stops. The battle never stops. And the challenge, did you really have victory? I'll never forget the first time because I, I, my family comes from a long line of alcoholics and adulterers and everything else. Made the decision that, that's going to cuss. And so I'm never drinking again. I'm delivered from that stuff. And so I'm at a Catholic uh, funeral. And they serve communion. I don't know why they do that. I don't understand all the Catholic doctrine stuff. And I'm sitting there, and I take the little wafer, and the little priest dips it in the, you know, everybody's drinking out of the same cup. That's how you get COVID going a little quicker. 
I think the alcohol kills it. I don't know. And so he gave me that, and when I put it in my mouth, I had a moment of incredible anxiety because it was the first taste of alcohol I'd had since I got saved. And my first thought was, oh, no. My second thought is I am a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have come new. I don't have to stand up every day and say, I'm Maury, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm Maury, and I'm not the Maury that I used to be. I'm the Maury that I'm going to be. I'm the Maury that I've become. And so that has no hold on me, and I just took communion. And rather than going into fear mode, I just moved into faith mode. But the devil wants you to say, well, I did it once. I'm going back. I I didn't mean to do it. I'm going back. I, I didn't expect to do that. I'm going back. You're not going back. Stand firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You say, well, you know, I, I don't have addiction problems. I've got emotional problems. Don't we all? <laughs> People say, well, that person looks like they're totally happy. They're in church. They're on Instagram. They're on Facebook. Don't nobody go on Facebook and say, my life is pitiful, my marriage is pitiful, my kids are pitiful, my health is pitiful. And and if they do, people quit following them because don't nobody want to share in your pity party. Don't nobody care. You got to get your burden to the burden bearer and the people of faith. Well, I'm in depression. Okay. Stop it. And I'm not talking about chemical depression. I'm talking about thought depression. You come to church and get a victory, but you go home and you close the curtains and get in a dark room and you play sad music and look at a yearbook when you used to have a waist and you used to have hair and you used to have friends and you used to just have one chin and you used to get out of the bed without moaning and groaning. I mean, and wonder why you're depressed. You create an atmosphere where the demon of depression is comfortable in your presence. Turn the light on. Throw your hands up and praise God. In his presence is fullness of joy. You've got to change the atmosphere around you if you're going to change what's going on in you. you got an anger problem. <laughs> Pray for me. He's been a project. <laughs> you're just tired all the time. Well, I'm just a low-energy person. No, you're not. Stop saying that. There are no, there's no such thing as a low-energy person. If you tell a low-energy man, you know, the guy never gets out of the recliner and comes home and doesn't do anything, hey, we're going to go duck hunting in the morning at 3 o'clock. He is out of bed. He's getting the guns out. I mean, he's, uh, you tell him he's going fishing or going to God. It's amazing how when you have something you want to do, you become an energetic person. So the next time somebody says, I'm low energy, say, no, you're just not passionate about cleaning the house. I meet women all the time. They say, my husband doesn't listen to me. If you really study how men think, men are not motivated by what you want them to do, they're motivated about what you're going to give them when they get done doing what you want to do. Honey, I want you to take out the trash. Honey, trash needs to be taken out. Honey, if you take that trash out, I'm going to get this steak cooked. I'll be right back. I mean, you, it just that's how men think. You say, well, my wife's not loving because you don't listen to her. 
I understand. You know, I do the man thing. My wife talks, and she says, you're not listening to me. I give her the last five words. I just have no idea what the context was. What was I talking about? It's like, I hate it when that happens to you. Like, I, uh, I have no idea. I've been talking for 30 minutes. I said, I know, but about five minutes into it, I was done. You don't know what it's like to go to sleep at night and the next morning wake up and the eyes are flaming fire looking at you and say, I was talking and you started snoring. I said, yeah, what were we talking about? That is the wrong thing to say first thing in the morning because what you're talking about is not what you're going to talk about. You, you, you got to get through this because the goal that the devil has is to move you into hopelessness. Everything is here to destroy your hope. And the reason that hope is so critical is there is no vision in hopelessness. There's no fresh vision in hopelessness. The gifts of the Spirit don't work in an atmosphere of hopelessness. The grace of God is walled out by a spirit of hopelessness in your life because even though God is able, you don't believe it, and you, as is your faith, be it unto you. Hopelessness is a horrible place to live because hopeless people think they're helpless people. And the devil wants to bring a giant into your life and all these lies into your life to mess you up. And it makes you make false assumptions. First one, this is the same giant that I fought 45 years ago. No, it's not. He's dead. You cut his head off. You need to remember what you did. The victory you got. Just because it looks the same doesn't mean it is the same. I know it's not politically correct what I'm fixing to say, but Pastor Bobby's in Puerto Rico and hopefully he doesn't have connection. You know, you see people all the time dressing a certain way. Ladies. And we don't know whether you're a mother or somebody hanging out on the corner. And you get mad. Just because I dress like this doesn't mean I am. And you get mad at us guys. How would you feel if I put on a police uniform and stood outside and somebody was robbing you and you came and say, Sir, sir, I've been robbed. And I say, Just because. sing soft that's he whispers when he sings but if I said just because I'm dressed like a cop doesn't mean I am a cop you'd say that that's wrong the, the devil wants to bring something into your life and say that's what it is just because it's dressed like that doesn't mean that's what it is just because it looks like Goliath doesn't mean it is Goliath just because it looks like that giant that threatened Israel doesn't mean it is it's not Goliath it's Goliath jr Put the giants in the junior category in your life. They tell you the other lies, well, you were never really victorious. See, Satan wants you to believe you never really won. You've always just been barely hanging on, just barely staying saved, barely staying in church, barely staying in the work, that you really never had a breakthrough. You've deceived yourself into thinking you've been victor victorious and delivered. Let me tell you the big lie. Complete victory for you is not possible. 
It's okay for them. It's okay for them. But you're not ever going to have complete victory. The last lie or one of the other lies is I have to fight this battle alone. Boy, that's a bad place to think because David was already battle-weary. He was already weary. Now the Bible says don't grow faint and well-doing, don't grow weary. That's not the kind of, he was physically weary from swinging that sword. When it looked like the enemy was going to get him, God brought some friends into David's life. You know, the Bible says if one falls down, there'll be somebody there to help him. Our friends are important to us. That's why Jesus said, I'm a friend. A friend is a friend at all times. If you tell somebody I'm your friend, I don't care what they do. You walk with them through it. You fight with your friends. The first giant was Ishbi Benob. The word Nob literally means prophecy. So the first giant came from a prophetic place. Anytime you receive a word from God, you need to expect a giant to show up. Anytime there's a prophetic word, the enemy is going to show up like a giant to rob that. And if you look at the friend that fought for David, he was Abishai. He means source of wealth. When the enemy shows up to rob you of your prophecy, you need to go to the source of wealth. And you say, well, I don't know, you know, when we think of wealth in America, we think of money. But when you think of wealth in the Word, go to Psalms chapter 112, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endure forever. The wealth that God is talking about is the fear of the Word, the fear of the Lord, and love for his Word. The sources of wealth in our life are the fear of the Lord and lovers. People say, well, I don't want to be afraid of God. That's not the kind of fear it's talking about. But people say, I can do anything and it's no big deal. You don't have the fear of the Lord. God is a holy God. Second giant was Saph, means preserver. And the friend that killed him for David was Sebuchai, means Jehovah is intervening. You know, when a giant comes with preservation for what God has done. The giant is there to destroy what God has done. And you need an intervention. Maybe that scripture that says, he that began a good work in me shall complete it. Nothing shall take me from the love of God. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. You need that intervention from the outside. The third giant was nameless, but the person that whipped him was Elhan, Elhanan, means God is gracious. Man, when you're just fighting the fight, you just need God to help you out a little bit. Just show up. I'll never forget one time they put it on a blooper reel years ago. I was trying to do the announcements for the TV show that we had on CBS in Nashville, and I messed it up like 10 times. I'd never done that before. And I was talking to myself. And, but they caught it on camera because the camera's rolling. And I said, hey, God, use a little help down here. The cameraman thought that was the funniest thing in the world. He said, was that a prayer? I said, it was a cry. I talk for a living. I have to make a 30-second introduction. We've been doing this for 15 minutes and I keep stumbling over words. I keep mispronouncing words that I pronounce all the time. And it gets in your head, and then you get stuck. The sixth giant was also nameless. 
he was just abnormal. Six fingers and six toes. But Abishai is the one, or Jonathan means Jehovah has given, took him down. So the giants were taken down by four principles. Four. Fear of the Lord and love for his word. God's intervention. God's grace and God's generosity. When you're saying, I'm in the middle of it, I'm in the, I'm in the battle. I got stuff going on out here. I need to remember I need my friends, but I also need my friends that are in the truth. I need to fight this fight by maintaining my fear of the Lord and my love for his word because the word of God is absolute and perfect. It's inspired. It's divine. God watches over his word to perform it. If you will walk in the word, God will perform the promises. You may need God's intervention. You know, there's some things you can't fix. There are some people you can't fix. You need God's grace because it's in his grace that your weakness is made strong. You don't need God's grace to do crazy worldly things. You need God's grace to be strong to not do those things. God's grace is not to give me liberty and license to sin. It's to give me the ability to get connected to the God who gives me freedom from sin. And you need God's generosity. You know, I need more than I can make. I don't know about y'all. I need a little help, Lord. So when the battle gets personal, you need friends. Because these are all the battles that are going outside, the giants that are coming at you from the world, the giants that are coming at you from circumstances. But, you know, there's another battle going on. It's an internal battle. There are people who their outside looks like paradise, but inside there is a war going on at another level. So you go to Psalms and you read where the shepherd would be leading the sheep and said he would prepare a table for them in the presence of their enemies. We look at the word table and we think of a table. But if you go to Israel, a table was not a physical table. It was a, a mesa, a plateau. It was an up, go up the hills a little bit, get out of the, the valley of despair, and get up on the hills, and, and there was a flat place, and that was called the table. And the shepherd would go in front of the sheep and pull up the weeds that would poison them and make sure the predators weren't up there. He would go and prepare the table, the mesa, the plateau, so that when the sheep got there, the food was going to be good and they were going to be safe from ingesting something that was wrong. You know, he didn't wait till they were there to prepare the table. They were still in financial struggle. They were still in threats of predators. They were still in stressful situation. He prepared a table before you when you were still in the presence of your enemies. And then he leads you up there. But just because you're there doesn't mean things can't go wrong. The predators weren't where the shepherd could see them. But they love to get up in those rocks. They love to sneak up and see if they can get on the peripheral of the sheep. You've all heard the story of anoint my head with oil. Came from the sheep. Most people don't realize that those flies would lay their larvae in the sheep's nostrils. And some of that larva would get into their scalp, some in their ears, 
but some literally went up into the cavity, the sinus cavities, and sounded like it was in the brain. And when they would hatch and become flies, they would begin to buzz around. And as the sheep began to be irritated, as he began to be frustrated, as he began to be confused about what was going on in their head, their actions did not help them get better. They would develop some physical maladies in their digestive system because their stress level was rising up and the hormones are going to another level. They would begin to snort. And people would say, well, what's wrong with that one? They didn't mean to do it. They'd begin to stomp their hooves because their brains are going nuts. As the flies would continue, they would back away from the shepherd and go to the outside of the sheep because they, they, they didn't want the other sheep around them. They, they didn't want to be messed with. They, they began to try to isolate themselves. And if it got worse, then they would, they would back up and go off to the very edge of the mesa and they would just be out of their minds. And if it got worse, they would begin to beat their heads on the rocks or on a tree or on a pole. And if it really got bad and the shepherd brought them back over, they would begin to hit the other sheep and hurt the other sheep because of what's going on in their heads. When the Bible says, renew your mind, put on the mind of Christ, bring every thought captive. We think of the term spiritual warfare as dealing with demons and stuff. It's not. Most of the times in the Bible, spiritual warfare is you with your mind. It's keeping the wrong thoughts out of your mind and getting the right thoughts in your mind. Because what happens when somebody begins to have wrong thoughts, they, they begin to get frustrated, and what used to bless them now bothers them. Where they used to throw their hands up, they now cross their arms. Where they used to come in, now they stay at the back. They used to sit at the front, and they're moving back. They used to come in, now they're out in the lobby. They used to come to every service, but now they just come every now and then. They're, they're moving in the wrong direction because the, the flies are in the See, he, the devil, the Bible says he is Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. you got to work on it. And how do you do that? You do that with the anointing. When those sheep would do that, the shepherd would get them, and he would anoint their head with oil, which cleared the, 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 the larva in the nose, and it sealed up where the flies could not get oxygen, and they would die because they were covered with the oil. They, when he would cover their head, they couldn't go in the scalp. They couldn't go in the ears because the oil held them down, and they died. You need friends for the external, but you need the Holy Spirit for the internal. You need the anointing of the Spirit of God to come on your life. You know, you're given the power to be a witness. When you're all jacked up mentally, you're not a witness. Do you know you can love Jesus and run people off because your brain's not right? I'm in New York City back before the COVID. And I'm working with a pastor. We're walking down the street, and I'm going back to my hotel, and this street preacher's on the corner, and he's screaming at people, you ain't got enough clothes to blow my nose. There's more cotton in an aspirin bottle, honey, than you're wearing. You're going to go to hell. I thought, whoa. He said, are you saved? I said, oh, yeah. I'm a Pentecostal preacher. He said, well, join me. I said, no. What you're doing is not Christian. 
Screaming at people is not going to make them fall in love with Jesus. Jesus didn't scream at the woman at the well. He didn't scream at the woman caught in adultery. He didn't scream at Zacchaeus. He didn't scream at blind Bartimaeus. Oh, it didn't mean he was easy. He told the woman that caught in adultery. When he, the last thing he said to her is, don't sin anymore. Stop it. He didn't condone it. But he built a bridge. The Holy Spirit is given for a number of reasons. But I think the two things God wants to do in the altar call I'm about to give is I think he wants to do what the Holy Spirit does. Repair you where you've been hurt. Or prepare you for what God has promised. And you can't be prepared until you're repaired. As long as you're living in pain, you'll not have what you need to walk in the promise. So I'm going to ask you very quickly, if you are hurt, if you've been wounded, if you've been damaged, if your head has got the flies of doubt and unbelief, self-condemnation, isolation, nobody understands me. You can sit in this room and feel absolutely alone because as a man thinks, so is he. If you need prayer for that today, would you just stand up?